The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells and with me today as always is New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey Maureen. Hey David. we got a great show for you today. First we're going to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. We've been ending our shows with your responses to questions we ask about topics from previous weeks. And this week, you're going to hear about an eye-opening movie moment from one of our listeners. She's standing beside him while he's seated, and she presses her knee against his hand until it slides up under her dress. He seems to figure out what he's doing over the next minute or so while she's closing her eyes and breathing heavy with Chris Cornell singing in the background. That's coming up later on, but first on today's show... We're going to be talking about whether relationships can coexist with friendship or how each of them fucks with the other one. We're joined in studio um, by Alana Massey, who's written lots of great pieces for The Cut, including two sort of on the subject, one of which is called My Boyfriend Isn't My Best Friend, My Cat Is, and another called Is Every Couple Hanging Out Without Me? Alana, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um... Maureen, I know there's some particular questions that you're like trying to prosecute today. Do you want to kick things off? Yeah. Um, so there's always been this sort of conventional wisdom truism that the ultimate significant other is your best friend. You know, you hear it in like wedding vows, I'm marrying my best friend, that sort of thing. And I guess I've always just wondered sort of what the wisdom on that is, if it's always been that way and whether there's a way to conceive of a significant other that isn't your best friend, or is that a bad idea? So then when Alana wrote the article, my boyfriend isn't my best friend, my cat is, I, of course, immediately was, you know, clicking and waiting to see sort of where she fell on the matter. So Alana, what is the pressure to make the significant other be sort of the best friend? Ought they always be? I guess when I think of a best friend, I think of someone who challenges me in a different way than a romantic partner does. And maybe I'm like hopelessly romantic and have witnessed like lifelong romances in my parents who don't seem like best friends. Like, they seem like people who are in love with each other. Like, they watch each other, like, walk out of a room. And, like, my friends, I want to sort of, like, hold me accountable and, like, not think I'm especially special. But, like, you know, there's a very different kind of mutual reliance with best friends. I also don't have best friends who are men, like, ever. And I'm primarily attracted to men. And so that's, again, one of these, like... It sounds like you're sort of... The best friend is sort of like grounded in reality, but the romantic relationship has some sort of magic to it that you don't see as helpful in friendship. I think that there's just something um, that is sort of elevated to it that like the stakes are higher because you have to live with that person. You have to like potentially, you know, raise a cat or raise a person or like have a Uh house together. Also, though, tell us more about the sort of because I mean, this opens up with the sort of looking at the idea of best friends and boyfriends, but it ends up actually being such a sort of owed to your cat and your relationship with your cat. How does how do you see your cat affecting your love life or vice versa? Um first of all, in my defense, that story started as my cat is my best friend. It really was always about the cat, but it became <laughs> this sort of and then I like saw the headline and like I love the headline because I think it's, you know, kind of antagonistic and funny, but it wasn't supposed to sort of like pit my boyfriend against my cat like, you know, like swords at dawn. Um, but can we pit them against each other though? <laughs> we if, could. If I you mean, had to choose Sophie's choice, do you choose Keith the cat or the boyfriend? What's his name? Craig. They both have like Craig or Keith. Super dude names. Um, I choose to throw myself in front of a train because <laughs> I wouldn't choose between Keith and Craig because 
I think Keith listens to podcasts, and he would know. <laughs> and I think Craig will listen to this podcast. How but long it, have you had Keith in your life? I've had how long Keith, has Craig been in your I've life? I've had Keith for four years, and Craig since, like, the beginning of this year. But it was, like, one of those very BFGF, like, right off the bat sort of fast things. Like, we know each other's families already. But something that I that – I, the reason I, like, hesitate is I th- I've written about this, too – that um, the first month I was dating Craig, my building caught on fire, and your, it was your cat saved your life. No, uh. my cat tried to kill me by what? By so we, it's like one a.m. the night of snowstorm Jonas, and my boyfriend wakes up and is like, "I smell smoke." And I'm like, "Oh, it's a barbecue." He's like, "No one's barbecuing during a blizzard. Get up." And I was like, "No, it's a barbecue." By and like tried to fall back asleep, and he like got up and went into the hallway and was filled with smoke. There was like a huge fire that wiped out the third floor, like the um, section of my building that I live in, like right beneath me. And the whole apartment was filling with smoke. And I was like, we have to get Keith. We have to get Keith. And Keith was being a bastard and was like, know what I do during fires? I run off and I scratch people. And it was like this moment in my head where I was like, at what point do I leave him? At what point do I leave him? At what point do I leave the cat? And Craig, like pounced on the cat who I couldn't catch and like shoved him in his carrier and like carried this like shrieking cat down you know six flights of stairs like we like tried to pass the firefighters and they're like go back up and like the windows blew out and like oh my it's God. snowing and like Wait, how did you get out do you do you get rescued down the ladder I have a fire escape in my bedroom and then we started going down the fire escape and there were firefighters on the escape and they were like go back up what and how- because the the windows were about to blow out. And so, like, 10 feet of, like, flame shoots out right after we, like, got Yikes. away. Oh, my. And I so, mean, no wonder things are, like, hot and heavy and real with this man. This yeah, is the and beginning that was the of a romantic comedy where it's, like, single lady with cat discovers man who also loves cat. Oh, my God, it's a fire. Funky fireman, not distracted. Yeah. Wait, wait, so wait, how do you how do you get out of the apartment though when the firemen tell you to go back up and so everything blows up there's a there i live in like an old um building with two fire escapes and so they made me go to they made us go to the roof uh-huh. walk across to another fire escape and then go down six flights and then we're stuck in a backyard like Ugh. as like flames and like ash is like flying Yikes. everywhere and like my cat is like ah, like making horrible cat noises and like Craig has like scratches all over him and none of my friends in my neighborhood were home and it's like 2 a.m. at this point. And so like me, Keith and Craig like went back up like to like North Brooklyn and I didn't know if I had an apartment. Um, So like Craig proved himself in -hmm. a lot of ways by being like, I don't know how I feel about this cat. Maybe right now it's only been like a month, but I really like this girl and this girl is not leaving without her fucking cat. And so I'll get the cat. Oh, my God. I think that the it's not even a rom-com. I think it's, like, I die in the story. And, like, Craig and Keith <laughs> have, like, a gentle masculine relationship. You're right. Somewhere, you know? Like, and I then, think like, that's... Jennifer Garner shows up and he learns to love again. Yeah. Ooh. Don't you hate those moments when you realize you're not the protagonist in your own life story? <laughs> yeah. Like, they're going to they're gonna learn to love in ways that I can't imagine. Did you have really romantic hero makeouts afterwards? Or was, like, the whole, like, cat crying, do I have a home situation too, too intense? We wa- I made him watch Alive, the movie about the um, Chilean people. rugby team that crashes in the Andes. And so they eat, they eat each other as they what? all freeze to death. It's like Ethan Hawke and like a bunch of studs from the early 90s. I was like, let's watch oh. this. Girl, you know romance. Yeah. And we, and we watched The Revenant 
that night. Well, so you were, you were in full on survivalist mode. Yeah, it sounds like not not hero makeout. Yeah, mode. but my boyfriend was just like, "Oh, it was no big deal. I've been in situations like that before." I'm like, what? "What? Yeah, is he a fireman? No, but he like spends a lot of time outdoors and like." He knows how to like build fires. He knows how to like oh. build, build furniture. He knows how to like grow things. Like oh, he, carpentry. He, he know, he, he's yeah, one of those men. Like carpentry, carpentry and gardening, and was like you know animal catching. Apparently, this is definitely a movie. I think you're back to being the protagonist, though. I hope so. Woodsy artist who makes carpentry. He's definitely like Adam Driver and Girls, which means you've got to be Lena Dunham. <laughs> so you are back to being the protagonist in your own life story. Congratulations. Hopefully, it's a cool life story. <laughs> And, like, Keith is, like, the, the whatever that, you know, moving object is that, like, really proves the love there. Yeah, I mean, I feel really superficial asking any questions of trying to force you to choose between them because you have lived that. I have watched both of them nearly die, Maureen. I know. And I will not choose. <laughs> no. I mean, like, I wouldn't – no one died of smoke inhalation. Like, people went to the hospital and, like, my apartment was there. But, like, in that moment, like, there's, like, you know, when there's, like, flames and everything, I was like, this man is is carrying my cat and, like, I don't have socks or underwear on and, like, I'm escaping my apartment and not sure I'll ever go back. And, like, the only thing I have is, like, this guy, you know, that I met a month ago – Okay, I'm revising everything we just talked about. <laughs> this man should be your boyfriend. He should also be your best friend. I'm just like going to go in the yeah, tank for this. Yeah, and he should friend. be your new cat. And he can be <laughs> everything. I know. That's why, I mean, if Keith wasn't listening, I mean, we, it's obviously, we could discuss it you as know. A possibility. Craig is a better person and a better cat than Keith. Like, Keith uh. is not a good cat. Like, he's actually a dog. And, like, he's not a good man. He's, like, an enchanted prince. Like, on all accounts, prince. Yeah, like he's an enchanted prince that got turned into a cat. Oh, does that mean he's miserable or entitled? It's a, a little bit of column A and a little column B. And then yeah. he's probably just being like, "Let me out." Huh. With a cat, you know you're going to lose them at some point because you're you're definitely going to outlive this cat, right? I think about Keith's mortality, and I'm like, I have to get another cat as insurance against losing Keith. And like, I was thinking of like, by the time Keith is you know dying, like my you know I uh, if things go as I imagine them going like I'll have children by then and Keith will be my kid's first cat and like how is Keith gonna like kids he really likes boys but like has also like you mentioned before um cats who pee on your stuff like my cat pees on boy stuff like he used to um always pee in my bed after a man had come over wait so this That's was the hilarious. dilemma. Um, it was before we started recording that I was like, the reason that the, like Sophie's choice of like cat versus boyfriend is that I was dating a guy and his cat kept insistently peeing on my clothes, um, like while I was sleeping. And I was trying to figure out if it, like it meant that the cat really liked me or really hated me. And I remember that there was a series of Google searches that were like how to make a cat like you that I did <laughs> because I knew that I was like I'm new in this person's life. He's had this cat for years. Can you? Kind if of someone's not... got to go, I've, I'm the one who's going to lose out. But is can you not make a cat like you? Don't they hate everybody and everything? Isn't that sort of their... My cat is, like, he is human obsessed. Like, he's a real, like, bastard to me. Like, he's, have you ever seen um, or read We Need to Talk About Kevin? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. He's, he's This is what you're comparing your cat to? Yeah, because, like, you know, Kevin is like, hey, I'm a great student. I love my dad and my sister. And then, like, they he, they go away and he's like, I'll kill you, mom. And then, like, he you know, he's, like, 
horrible sociopath. And Keith is kind of like that when we're alone. Like, I take him to, like, get groomed, and they're like, he's the sweetest cat. I'm like, you don't know what I know. Oh, my God. And he's, like, pretty chill with, like, friends and stuff. And, like, I mean, we have our, you know, tender moments, as did Kevin and Tilda Swinton. Um, But he's also, like, super in love with me and, like, always wants to hang out. Like, he wants to be held constantly like a baby, like an infant. And I feel like that level of dependence also makes me feel, like, devoted to him. How do you deal with um, making out with your boyfriend? Like, is the cat in your arms? I never have my cat in my bedroom because he pees in the bed. He once peed directly on a man. Oh, my God. How did the man react? He was like, oh, it's so cool. It's okay. It's cool. Oh, wow. And that guy turned out to be the worst person I've ever dated. Like, (laughs) restraining order bad. And I was like, good job, Keith. Like, but for the most part, he keeps it to, like... Like, it used to be, like, you know, like, how to hook up. He would pee in my bed. And then, like, he would be chill for a while and, like, not do it. And then suddenly just be like, just so you know who you belong to. Yeah, I always find dealing with pets and sex really alarming and upsetting. Yeah, don't dogs, like, jump on people and, like, want to get into Oh, (laughs) I'd sooner, like, that would definitely be like, oh, I ha- well, I have to be dead now. That's all there is to it. I have this friend who she basically, she met this guy and like the relationship was destroyed by the fact that she met him. And at the time she was like babysitting a dog for a different family member. And um, she she was in one room basically. And so the dog kind of, there was nowhere else to put the dog when this guy came over. And the dog, whenever she was like making out or having sex with him, the dog just whined so crazily and needed to be in the bed while it happened that she's like it just ruined it i could never be with that man <laughs> had to be in the bed it really could not deal with the idea that i don't know if it's that it thought other people were having fun without it or if it understood or if it was being protective of her and it thought that like something was happening and it had to be there but she's like the trauma of like getting it on with this guy and all of a sudden feeling this dog like not like nosing at my foot was just like thank god it was her foot. scarring of like the dog and the man and everything have you ever looked like seen dogs having sex and had oh. any flush of sexual like energy no no have you no but <laughs> i feel like it is i don't know it's like possible just to be like reminded that like oh there's like sex in the world it reminds know, like, me that, that there's sex in the world and that i probably look awful doing it too. <laughs> yeah i'm That's like the, oh and then i'm like oh well, I mean, I guess part of the point of sex is that you're, like, knocking yourself down a few rungs on the evolutionary ladder. But on the same time, you're, like, too animalistic. Oof. I look like an animal when I do that, don't I? Like, when people say fucking like bunny rabbits, I'm like, oh, Like, don't remind me that, like, we are similar to. And we two are mammals. Yeah. Also, like, I like the- that Keith is a virgin. Do you know, do you that, know for that for sure? sure. Oh, yeah. my God, David. <laughs> Um, yeah, unless... It's like we've got some animal porn for you to look at. Like we've got some surveillance footage. Alana, you might want to take a drink of water, take a deep breath. It makes me feel better about my cat-human relationship, knowing that people let their dogs in their bed, because I'm like, I have boundaries. Like, I will kick my cat out, and he'll cry at the door, and I'm like, it's okay, you're a cat, you'll forget soon, and, like, go chase, you know, a feather, and it'll oh be fine. But people are like, oh, like, gotta, gotta let the dog be in the Ew. bed. No, you don't. I can't handle a cat crying at the door either, though. I find it very distracting. I just I hate pets in general. Just like (laughs) I've not dated people because of Keith. Like I had a guy that I really liked, and he sort of treated Keith like a bee. Like he was like sort of tolerant, but he was like shoo shoo to him and said he didn't like animals. And I was like, well, that was fun while it lasted. 
which was not at all. And then I didn't know how to like break it off with him without being like, you treated my cat like a bee. <laughs> like, because that sounds crazy, but like Keith is gonna be in my life. True. And I think it would be weird to not like someone's, I mean, to not at least tolerate someone's pet. It'd be rather torturous if you dislike animals to be in a committed long-term relationship of someone with animals. Yeah, and I mean, I also think, like, I can learn to love things because I know other people love them. Like, I've come to love, like, friends of boyfriends, not because I think I would have, like, innately been, like, friends with this person otherwise, but because I'm like, oh, like, this is a person who adds value to your life. Like, this is a person who matters to you. And I think animals are the same way. Like, oh, this is a creature that's been in your Mm -hmm. life. And, like, I will, like, honor, like, the love and the history that's there and, like, the relationship that exists. And I think optimally regarding, I guess, animals and also the friend question, I mean, I think the times that I've seen someone I was dating with their friends and it sort of enriched things is that you also sort of see that person in a new light. And you see, like, this is what you are to those people. This brings out some other element of you. Um, do you I don't think, think the heart has a finite amount of space in it. And that's in that yeah. singles piece where I'm like, that's just a turn of phrase, like find a place in your heart. It's like, I think that people's love can be expansive. Like it their can. time necessarily isn't necessarily. Well, no, when I think about it, I think the biggest reason that I have trouble committing to people is because I'm so, I spent probably the majority of the last few years mostly being on my own like nobody's I've not been like so-and-so's girlfriend Maureen like that hasn't been part of my identity for a long time and have there been relationships that you've ever had that you would describe the person as your best friend um yeah I think um I had one relationship where I lived with the guy and actually when we broke up it's that losing my social circle felt so catastrophic the feeling of that I'm not only losing like the person I live with and like my so much of just my world and my life And then on top of that, it felt like all of a sudden when you break up that way, like you have all these friends that you function as a couple with, right? Like your couple friends, all of a sudden there's this weird thing that there were literally dinner parties where it's like, well, now they've got to invite another single person because Maureen's going to come. Well, do they even know other single people? And the idea that my entire social life would be disrupted has, I think, in the sort of reverse, made me really cautious about committing to people because I'm really cautious about, I think – Letting something disrupt my my social sense of self, I guess, and like sort of my social world and like <laughs> my friends being too attached to somebody and then it's like catastrophic when we break up. Do you feel like that the world is divided into like single people and coupled people? There are some people that I mean, I pretty also I mean, part of that breakup was also that I was like, I don't want to live in the world of like coupled dinner parties. Like, fuck that. Yeah, no. Please, yeah. and I was like way too young for it. I was like 24 at the time. And I was like, what the hell am I doing playing house? But... There are some worlds where that that is really, really stark. That's what that other piece I was I um, wrote about, like, our couples hanging out without me was very much like this new world opened up where people were like, oh, like, you got a key to the kingdom. Like, now it's brunch and, like, fancy things. This is things. so crazy to me. And yeah. I was like, where were you? Did you think I was less interesting? And, like, people are telling me more about their relationships. I'm like, did you think that I was, like, a dysfunctional advice giver because I didn't have a boyfriend? Like... This is so so this was fascinating to me. And this also um, when I read this article, you mentioned you make that I don't know if it's a joke, serious joke and serious about your parents being more thrilled about visiting. Oh, they were like stoked that, you know, because they they're not like actively people who say like, oh, are you going to get married? Like they're not, you know, pressuring me in that way. But they are very 
my mom gets really excited about boys and I never tell her anything and so like if it's like a boyfriend it's like very sudden and she gets like really excited about it and she was really like oh yeah come visit us in Portland and like we'll you know like we'll make up the bed and all like they just moved there she was like I'm gonna finally clean up this house that we moved into (laughs) because they had just moved there and she had been like stalling on like preparing her house and then like I just love that she's basically being like we will have a place for you to have sex with one another (laughs) oh yeah Of course. Don't worry. My parents are like, we'll make up your brother's bed in the other room. Do you really need to come? (laughs) (laughs) But it works in the other way, too. Like, people who are in relationships often have, like, fear that the world is going on, like, at a much more rapid pace without them. So this was so surprising to me. And I wondered if, um, I mean, on one hand, this sort of the feeling, my feelings of that I see the world so differently that I was like, I feel like I'm afraid to enter relationships because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my social life. And I feel like I'm probably... I'm pretty sure. I think I'm more popular when I'm single. Um, I'm not sure if there's a reason for that. And then I was like, is this because I'm dating the wrong men? Is it that like nobody likes my boyfriends? <laughs> or am I just like being a maniac about these things? Um, and then I, and then it made me totally go on some spiral because I started thinking, I think when I'm with a date, I feel like we have to operate as a unit. And maybe maybe that's what my sort of difficulty is, is that there's something about wanting to be viewed as like my own individual person and I don't like how you get sort of absorbed into this dyadic unit when you're operating in a couple in a social world like you felt offended when people do think of you and talk about you that way when you have been in couples or just that when that becomes integral to your identity there's so many people that say know you as so-and-so's girlfriend and then yeah. you cease to be so-and-so's girlfriend then it's kind of this like well what am I to you what use is Maybe she I'm to me? nothing to yeah. you yeah but no, that I think there's some people that enjoy, and I've enjoyed at various points, like the feeling of just like it's you and me and like we're just in this like crazy bubble alone. I could definitely live in a bubble forever with Risa. I'd oh. be happy. Romance. Yeah. And save her from fires. <laughs> but I also think that um, having been single a long time, I've structured my life in a way that I sort of get what I need from a various sort of like assortment of people. And then it makes it more confusing to try to be with just one person. Like, I'm dating a guy now, and he showed, he was like, oh, I'll pick up your, like, prescriptions at the pharmacy. And I was like, what the hell? Who does something that kind? Who would ever wait in line at a pharmacy? I which, didn't even know you could do that. It sounded kind of crazy that you can do it. Yeah, right? It, right? it totally is. Like, all you have to know is their birthday? Yeah. <laughs> um, Last four of their, you know, phone number. It's crazy. But it's the kind of thing you would never ask a friend to do for you, or unless, like, there was, like, a really, really urgent need for yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Um, Because it just feels like a little out of the way in a certain way. That's the thing that I think like separates best friendship and sort of the like partnership element that the like the romantic dimension does require like you are the person who has to show up. And I feel like your best friend can sometimes like get out of that because I think there's like lower stakes because there's like a higher volume of you when there's like groups of friends because like you're, you're you know, you're like individual units and like. When you're a part of a unit, and like my boyfriend doesn't say like you're my best friend, but he says like we're on the same team, yeah. And like I feel like being on the same team is like a like sweet way of being sort of you know mutually dependent in a way that's like intimacy, but not like best friendship. Like it just functions in a very different way. You may have convinced me if a man rescues me from a fire, I might be willing to try. Relationship <laughs> again. That's what I'm starting to think now. So, Alana, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a blast talking to you. I feel like this is going to be edited to be like, Alana's cat is so much more important than people. (laughs) (laughs) 
on to voicemails. Last week, as part of our conversation about sex on film with pa- directors Pamela Romanowski and Joey Kuhn, we asked you to call in and tell us about your favorite movie sex scenes. Hi, David and Maureen. This is Truman from Cleveland, Ohio. On the topic of sex scenes in movies, there are two that stand out for me. The first is the Great Expectations adaptation starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Ethan Hawke. There's a scene early in it where the young, bumbling guy who knows nothing about how to please a woman is propositioned by Paltrow's character. She's standing beside him while he's seated, and she presses her knee against his hand until it slides up under her dress. He seems to figure out what he's doing over the next minute or so while she's closing her eyes and breathing heavy with Chris Cornell singing in the background. At the time this was in theaters, I, too, was a young, bumbling guy who knew nothing about pleasing women, so I was really captivated by the idea of a girl who'd be so forward as to show a guy how to please her for his first time. Itsu Mama Tambien is the other movie that comes to mind, which was brought up in the last episode. It checks even more boxes for me because, one, I have a voyeurism fetish. The first couple of times that Louisa is having sex with these two younger guys, one of them is essentially watching the other get fucked. Even if they were frustrated, I thought it was super hot. Two, I'm bisexual and fascinated with the concept of the threesome that ends up going in all directions. Tried sounding postscript. I adore the podcast. Keep up the good work. I, I think Gwyneth Paltrow may be the famous person I find less, least sexy in the whole world. That scene I is- get embarrassed just thinking about her trying to be sexy. <laughs> the scene is notable. I remember it, too, in that it was such a sort of, like, straightforward depiction of fumbling fingering. Although I know during the episode of Manny Stamp Miller, we prohibited that word, and we now refer to it as a hand job. So a very specific scene of, like, a boy timidly attempting to give a woman a hand job and I think that was really memorable because I think I was a teenager at the same time too I don't recall thinking it was sexy but I do just remember it feeling true to life in some way which in retrospect is very impressive that Ethan Hawke could even fake that because I'm sure he was just like born having sex with beautiful women it's interesting to think a little bit about like you know we all have like such sexually charged memories of like our first encounters but how much of the that like erotic charge that those memories still have is about the awkwardness of them you know we don't really like fetishize awkwardness generally but there is something about like those early memories that like the weirdness of it and the uncomfortableness is like part of the story right yeah the sort of fumbling yeah um although i don't feel like those necessarily have an erotic charge to me it's more maybe nostalgic yeah um and sort of like something fun to laugh about right i don't necessarily think that i'm like fantasizing about the horrible hand jobs i had <laughs> when i was or gave or gave either way those do not belong <laughs> in the world of things i find sexy um, and before we go, we want to talk about an incredible coincidence, which we only learned about after the last episode, which was in you know one little bit we were talking about this um, particular scene in the John Cameron Mitchell film, Short Bus, which the scene was a gay threesome, which was sort of choreographed to the tune of Star Spangled Banner. Um, we didn't realize that actually our dear friend and producer Sam Dingman was actually in the movie. The mysterious Sam Dingman speaks. Regular <laughs> listeners will be used to hearing his name at the very end of every podcast. Hello, Sex Lives listeners. I was indeed in the movie Short Bus, and it happened completely by accident. Um, I moved to New York in hopes of becoming an actor, and I went to one of those liberal arts colleges where if you're an actor, you take classes like clowning for social change. That oh, sort of so you can clown too? Only for social change. Only for social change. <laughs> but uh, so... 
I moved to New York and I didn't have a headshot. I didn't really know what a headshot was. I had like a headshot that my mom had taken in our backyard. <laughs> so I wasn't really getting a lot of uh, auditions. And I was feeling kind of desperate. So I was sitting on Craigslist one day and I saw this casting notice for the new John Cameron Mitchell movie. And I thought, oh, he's the guy who made Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which I had not seen, but I knew it was like a famous independent movie. And it said they were looking for hip urban types. So I thought, <laughs> like, this is just the f- headshot that my mom took of me yeah. in our backyard. <laughs> right. Tulips in the background. <laughs> so I sent my stuff in. And to my great surprise, I got an email back saying, hey, Sam, this looks great. Um, we'd love to have you uh, be a background actor in the film. Um, please show up at this warehouse in Dumbo on this day and be dressed for a downtown dinner party. It didn't say what the movie was about. Nothing. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I have been to a number of downtown dinner parties, as I understand them. Um, so I put on like a pair of khakis and a button-down shirt, and I had this like straw boater that I used for like comedy sketches. So I thought, oh, this will be a little piece of flair I could bring because mm-hmm. you know it's You're trying to stand out in the scene, right? Yeah. I thought maybe straw boat need... hat. Yeah, I, I had this idea. I guess that like at some point. They would need someone from the background to step forward and say, where's the closest bus stop or something? And that <laughs> if I had the hat on, I would get to be that guy. Peacocking. <laughs> Peacocking for, like, the director. Yes, exactly. Uh, little did I know uh, what I was getting myself into because I show up on the day of the shoot and I go walking in and I'm, like, basically the only person wearing clothes. Everybody else <laughs> is almost completely naked Except the other men there, many of them are dressed as women in beautiful, like high drag, like yeah. ball gowns, um, heavily made up. There's a lot of like feathers everywhere. Um, most of the people are naked and I'm standing there in my idiot boater. <laughs> did he send a different email to those people or did they just interpret it that way? <laughs> to this day, I have no idea why like no information was provided to me. Uh, so I'm like trying to figure out – I think maybe I'm in the wrong place. It's unclear to me what's going to happen. Did you think happen. maybe it was a gag that was being played on you, or did that not cross your mind? I, in, Ashton Kutcher was about to jump out. I was so shell shocked that I don't. I think I was. I was in that state where like you're only having like one thought a minute, yeah. and that <laughs> thought is like I don't know what to do. <laughs> uh, so as I'm kind of processing all of this, John Cameron Mitchell appears. He jumps up on this platform. And he says, okay, everybody, uh, this is the last scene of the movie, which, again, like nobody's described the plot to me, no information. He says, this is the last scene of the movie. Um, here's how it's going to go. You're all hanging out in this club. You're, you're having a good time. And then eventually a marching band is going to come in, and then you all fuck each other. Let's do it. <laughs> which, if you've seen Short Bus, that's exactly what happens yeah. in the last scene of the movie. Uh, you like, someone should have explained this to me so this PA starts coming around and pairing people off. So he come, the PA comes up to me, makes no remark of the fact that I'm fully normally clothed. Or your beautiful straw hat. Or my, he does not take into account <laughs> the, 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 you know, I had it cocked at an angle. I thought it was so cool. Um, and he says, uh, what's your name? And I was like, Sam. And he says, I'd like you to meet Lucius. So he introduces me to this guy named Lucius, who is a beautiful human being, chiseled, Naked except for, like, the smallest pair of jean shorts I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, he had this big tattoo of angel wings on his back. And he is eating a watermelon from Craft Services. <laughs> the shorts, in fact, were so small that his penis was hanging out the bottom of them. 
Um, Big penis? It was sizable. <laughs> it was it was pretty sizable. What a genital education you got that day. I It was an education in many things. So what did you say? So I said, how's the watermelon? And he said, it's a sexy watermelon. And I said, Lucius, this isn't going to work. I... <laughs> That's literally what came out of my if mouth. If he had said something else, though, you might have played along. Well, <laughs> it was like it was the line. This is a sexy watermelon. You're like, right. this is not going to work. Yeah, that's just not. That's not what turns me on. That, <laughs> like food, food play, not into right. it. Um, and it, the thing that was weird about it, though, is that I said this to him, and then because it was this kind of hot house environment, and I had been so desperate to find something like anything resembling an opportunity. Even though I said, Lucius, this isn't going to work. There's a part of me that instantly regretted it and thought, like. <laughs> I could do this, right? Is This is a thing that people do. Yeah. And just as I was having that thought, John Cameron Mitchell himself came over and he was like, Lucius, beautiful. I love everything that's happening. And then he turned to me and he said, word for word, honey, what happened? Ah! <laughs> and I said, you said downtown dinner party. And he said, I know. Have you ever been to a downtown dinner party? No. And I said, <laughs> I thought I had. <laughs> oh, my God. And he's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. You're going to be the confused guy in the corner who doesn't understand what's happening. <laughs> Typecast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's the best performance I've ever given. Um, because if you if you watch the movie, again, the marching band comes in and everybody starts having actual sex with each other. And what's the only thing uh, crazier than that to be a part of once is to be a part of it for like seven takes in a row um, where like, you know, he keeps stopping in the middle of it. People like kind of climb off each other, put their clothes back on and they like do the same thing over and over and over again. And, and you're so sitting in the corner being confused the whole time. They had real vodka uh, on the set and I had a lot of it. <laughs> um, and if you watch the last scene of the movie, it, it goes by really, really fast. But there's a part where it pulls out to this wide shot. And if you look in the back right-hand corner, I'm one of the few people wearing a shirt, and it's an orange shirt. Is your hat on? And uh, my hat was on. I don't know if you can make it out in the in the final uh-huh. cut, but you do see me kind of like dart by <laughs> at one point, probably looking for cover. <laughs> um, so this happened early on in your like New York life, early in oh, your yes. professional life too. Indeed. Was this a formative experience, would you say? Formative sexually, professionally? In terms of your understanding of dinner parties, you get to the next dinner party you're invited to <laughs> naked. I don't know. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I still don't know what downtown dinner party means in in this context. Do you think there was it was like a code that you just didn't get? Well, I, I was telling this story to a friend once and they said like, oh, you don't know a downtown dinner party is a euphemism for a dinner party that you go to and you dress as the opposite sex. And I was like, I don't really, I don't. I've looked. I've looked this up on Urban Dictionary. I not, which is obviously an <laughs> empirical source of this kind of information. Uh, that felt like something that that person just made up because they they just said that. I mean, I yeah. want to just fuck with you now and be like downtown dinner party, duh. But um, <laughs> actually, like I, I'd be more believe it if it were like a euphemism just for orgy. That actually yeah. seems more plausible. Yeah, and perhaps it is. Yeah. <laughs> so not in a way that any of the three of us have ever heard. That is remarkable to me, though, that to have a Craigslist ad that somehow 
filters such that everybody knew and got the message. I mean, just basically, like, I once tried to sell a chair on Craigslist, and the number of people that, like, misunderstood that information was really intense. So I can't imagine. Yeah, that's true. I feel like most people assume that anything advertised on Craigslist is part of a larger sexual proposition, (laughs) right? It's all downtown dinner parties. That's an interesting question, though, like, what if it was a formative (laughs) experience? One thing that was funny about it is when I decided I wanted to move to New York to be an actor, my mom, who is like a very wonderful, supportive, open-minded person, sat me down and said, like, I understand if you want to do porn. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> but, I, but you don't have to. Oh, my God. Can Mrs. Dingman. <laughs> She's like, if it comes to that, like, just call me first and we'll figure something out. And I was like, Mom, it's not – that's not – why I am moving to New York to be an actor. So that the first gig, I guess you could call it, that I ever got was close. Was close. <laughs> uh, is something she that was a prophet. She apparently was. She apparently was. Or she, re- yeah, she really knew John Cameron Mitchell's work really well. Yeah. I love that story so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for Sex Lives this week. Thanks for coming on and actually telling us about it, Sam. Thank you for having me. Um, now, remind you, you can always reach us at 646 494 3590. Um, this week, call us and tell us about how your sex lives have affected your non-sexual friendships. Um, sex Lives is produced by Sam Digman, who's this week sitting right next to us. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you guys next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>